The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Its policy is not a scientific argument. Four. We're in for a very rocky road with China. They're throwing their weight around in all sorts of ways. Three. The European Parliament needs a unanimous vote to go for a wee, Liam, so whether or not it can actually get its act together to, to sign off a deal. Two. If there's one Brit they hate more than Boris Johnson, it's poor old Nigel. One. We have lift off. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's our 30th voyage in our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, the Big 3-0. And who'd have thought back in May, when we first blasted off, that seven months later we'd still be in lockdown? <laughs> It'll all be over by Christmas, would back then have sounded astonishingly pessimistic. Now the government's thinking hard about imposing restrictions even over the festive period. And it seems inevitable, despite vaccines being rolled out, that lockdown will be with us until spring. It's been a week of contrasts. London and parts of Hertfordshire and Essex have joined much of the Midlands and the North in Tier 3, the most restrictive antivirus category. And there's been a bad-tempered row over schools closing, with the government ordering some councils to keep classrooms open until the end of term. On Brexit, though, there are signs of a deal, or at least a commitment on both sides to keep talking. They've had four and a half years. <laughs> What's left to talk about? Alison, how's your Christmas shopping? Oh, Mr Halligan. <laughs> what have you got me? <laughs> it's top, Set of jugs. <laughs> it's top secret. <laughs> as long as it's COVID compliant. <laughs> it's a gag with orthogonal to the orthodoxy across it, so we can... So we can shut you up for appropriate moments. Look, before we plunge into the crazy COVID Christmas vortex of doom, let's start with a cracking piece of good news. Hit me. Planet Normal listeners have been following very closely the story of Robert and Josephine. Robert Styler wrote to us many months ago, Liam, sharing his anguish at being unable to meet up with them, his childhood sweetheart, now his 84-year-old sweetheart, Josephine, who is in a care home with dementia and yesterday from Robert I've booked my first visit to Josephine for Wednesday at 3 p.m so that was happening yesterday which is fantastic I know hooray hallelujah providing I pass the rapid test not going anywhere until then I had my first vaccine on Tuesday and hopefully Joe's will follow shortly when I dropped off her flowers, Hello magazine, chocolates and her favourite panna cotta, I also booked an hour with her on Christmas Eve. Happier days are here again, wow. but not for all of us. Let's not forget that from Robert. With love and thanks to all on Planet Normal. But before we cheer too loudly, I did follow up with Nikki Hurst from the Rights for Residents campaign. You know, we've yep. spoken to Nikki before. You and Nikki have been a kind of Batman and Robin double act terrorising Helen Whateley. Yes, well, stuff. I know, you know, come the revolution, the chocolate the chocolate teapot, which is what all the rights for residents people call Helen Whateley will be, if you can put a chocolate teapot up against the wall. But Nikki says, sadly, in truth, Liam and Alison, it's worse than ever. For the first time, many of us in our campaign group feel utterly despondent or rather absolutely livid. More and more relatives are now consulting their lawyers. Since Boris's promise of hugs by Christmas, our members report that 70% of homes across the UK are simply refusing to implement the guidelines. Now, they met with Helen Wakeley last week, who said she would be talking to councils and major care home groups to ensure that they rolled out these fast tests in time for Christmas and for the promised visits. But Nikki says the cruel reality is that individual care homes would rather carry on as they are with no visits. What are they trying to hide? Nobody has been inside these care homes since March, not even the Care Quality Commission. She talks about one gentleman, an ex-police inspector who's sobbing because his mum died in September. She was constantly asking for him. He couldn't go to her. He's now undertaking mental health counselling. He's certainly not alone, says God. Nikki. Robert is one of the very lucky ones. I hope 
Liam, that I hope that Robert and Josephine's story can be used as leverage by all these of other course, poor people who are desperate now, aren't they, to get into those homes. I know you've been hammering away at this, Alison, and chapeau to you. You're too modest to blow your own trumpet, oh, of course. Well, well, hardly, um, but... No, you, I think you've done... <laughs> You've done really well on this story, bringing it to public prominence. I think it's fair to say after we highlighted Robert and Josephine's case on Planet Normal months and months ago, a lot of other newspapers followed in our wake. It started to become a really big issue in Parliament. A lot of MPs got behind what you and Nikki were trying to do. Do you think it still boils down to the fact that a lot of the care homes who are refusing to implement the government's guidelines are still holding out for some kind of government indemnity against future legal action from the families of other residents who may catch COVID and then die from it and they can try and pin that on the visitor regime? Do you think that's what's going on? I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that we're seeing this over-enthusiastic interpretation of guidelines in every sector. I think it's brought out the sort of numpty factor that we've talked sort about of before. Over-officiousness. Over-officiousness. Um, yeah, yeah. We've seen in schools, haven't we, this week, oh, yes, we're going to close down because, you know, three people in this particular year have, you know, have, have coughed. And there's been, I'm afraid that I don't think the government is always to blame. I think that it's people on the ground in hospitals, in schools and clearly in care homes who are just not allowing common sense and humanity to come in. Boris said there would be hugs for Christmas. Although now, Liam, the last thing I heard today was let Easter be the new Christmas. Now, as, as a former Sunday school teacher, I'm going I'm I'm to take issue with that because the Bible story is... An, an Easter bunny with, with antlers. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> so around the country, you know, we were told that there were going to be this five days of armistice over Christmas. People could meet up. Three households in, in, in one home could meet up and the, the train tickets have been booked. The turkey's been reserved. I mean, you know, we, we always struggle, don't we, Liam, to, to know what to do with the, with the turkey leftovers. But this year, if, if no if no one... It's going to be a turkey mountain. It's going to be, it's going to be uh, you know, turkey carbonara, turkey Caesar salad, turkey, you know, I mean, we'll... we'll We'll all be ransacking the Nigella books, desperately looking for turkey inspiration. But it's quite serious. Let, let's just unpack this a bit, all right. So Christmas, we've got the British Medical Journal and the Health Services Journal doing a, a combined leader warning about how risky it will be and all the people on the media. We noticed all the journalists at the press conferences pressing the Prime Minister to renege on his promise that we could have Christmas. And look, Liam, the reality is, is that there are about 66 million people in the UK, of whom for 50 million of those people, and that's a very modest estimate, COVID poses no threat whatsoever. What strikes me about this sort of, I mean, you know, you're seeing Keir Starmer, all the usual suspects sort of shouting for more restrictions and for everything to be closed down. But quietly, families around the country are arriving at their own common sense solutions yeah. to Christmas. And I know people who are paying for tests if they are having an elderly person coming. People are not stupid, Liam. We're just months and months into these restrictions and people are still being patronised and dictated to in a way I just find quite offensive. What do you think? You know, I listened to Robert Jenrick on the radio this morning talking about the government's plans for Christmas, and I've sometimes criticised him. He's, he was meant mm. to be on talking about the government's new plans on housing, and, of course, literally 10 seconds of the interview was about housing, and most of it was about Christmas. And I, I found myself nodding in agreement with him because the government's holding the line, and they're basically saying, look, it's up to you. You don't have to go to the limit of these rules. You don't have to have three households. You could have two. Maybe consider if your parents are elderly and vulnerable, then maybe you shouldn't see them. Make your own decisions. And I think that's exactly the right tone. Because if the government now was chopping and changing, I think there would be complete disconsternation. The whole idea of rules and restrictions could be completely upended. So I think it's right for the government to say, we've set these rules, they're a limit to what you can do rather than a requirement, make your own decisions. In my own family, and I know in yours, Alison, elderly relatives have decided they're not going to see family 
at Christmas. We've got Zoom. We can talk on the phone. We can send gifts to each other. It can be done. And I actually think a really big theme of this whole lockdown has been in overall sense, how compliant and sensible people have been. Yes, media pundits are always going to be sniffy about certain people doing certain things, usually younger people. But I think in the main, we've been pretty sensible. And I think most people will be pretty sensible over Christmas. I mean, let's just think that the government did impose much more draconian rules over Christmas, doing a reverse ferret, as we say in journalism, on their previous position. How are you going to police that? Mm. I mean, are are the police literally going to knock on doors in suburbia (laughs) on the 25th of December? I mean, that how can that possibly be good for society for the policemen and women involved what a terrible job for them to have to do mm-hmm. for neighbors snitching on each other so i think the government's actually right by saying look guys just take it easy be sensible you know there aren't going to be downtown bars open okay mm-hmm. it's not it's not a normal bank holiday weekend in the sun it's Christmas. Almost everywhere's closed. <laughs> yes. Except a few hotels where you can get a COVID compliant Christmas dinner in tier one down there in Cornwall. Don't forget the Isle of Wight and the Silly Isles and tier two. So I think the government's actually made a good call by not bending to preening media columnists and saying, we need leadership. Tell us we need to be completely locked down and you turn, you turn. Absolutely. I don't want to bore you. You know, it's not my plan to bore you. Never. <laughs> he says after a pause. Stand by, co-pilot. I think okay, hold on. I just brace, think... brace, brace, Velma, brace. incoming. Right. It it's Velma. a Velma attack. <clears throat> my God, she's got so many facts in her hands. I hope that the <laughs> listeners will agree with us. I think it's worth giving George our brilliant NHS source a full reign this week, all right? So we've got whatever it is, 34 million people in the country in Tier 3. So let's just say again who George is. George is somebody who we know who they are. We're not telling you who they are, but George is somebody with full access to the NHS England data dashboard, telling us things in the data that are very, very difficult for the public to otherwise see. And you often are in touch with George and George gives you data and then you report it on Planet Normal. Yes, George is a brilliant instant rebuttal service. If I'm ever boiling over about something I've seen on the news, I text George and he's straight back. Liam, I want to read this to you. So I want you to listen now to what's going on in our country. Velma said to George, what evidence is there for London going into tier three? George said, there is no real evidence other than what's going on in the eastern side of London. The rest of London has low cases, if you look at the map. Central and Western hospitals all have less than 100 COVID inpatients, totally normal for respiratory infections at this time of year. Nationally, 30% of ICU is unoccupied. 47% is occupied with non-COVID patients. Only 22% of ICU is occupied with COVID patients. One third of intensive care unit beds are not occupied. That is not an NHS that is under imminent threat of being overwhelmed. And I'm just going to go on with George because this is brilliant. The Department of Health is saying cases are rising exponentially, but you can't say that on the basis of one or two days worth of data. It doesn't tally with anything that has been coming out of the Office for National Statistics or the King's College app, which you know Professor Tim Spector is running. Hospital cases were falling. Then a few localised situations caused another little ripple. And hey, presto, we're into third wave panic stations by senior leaders in the NHS. That blip is actually being driven by the remaining few areas which are currently experiencing an increase in cases. Kent, East London, Essex and Lincolnshire. They are all places that weren't as badly affected the first time around. So there's still capacity for viral spread there. No one, says George, is challenging that narrative and saying, hang on, how do we know this is not just a localised outbreak, as we saw in Liverpool a few weeks ago? There's just this baked-in doomsday mentality. And I just want to read this final bit, Liam. George says, 
I am looking at graphs that simply don't support the idea that we are in a dramatic exponential phrase. It's just all so ridiculous now. The NHS is drunk on power and will be happy to see the restrictions carry on as long as possible. They should care about other factors because they all impact on health in the long run. But that doesn't seem to be high up enough on the priorities, except for cancer. But even cancer is accepted as being a sacrificial lamb for COVID as if it came to it. What can you expect when our own Department of Health uses the word exponential at will to describe a slight blip in the downward trajectory of cases and hospital admissions in a few isolated areas? But trying to talk across that is like shouting in the wind. You don't get that on the tea time news, do you, co-pilot Halligan? No, you certainly don't, Alison. That's astonishing. The NHS is drunk on power. That's from someone senior working within it who's watching them responding to these tiny little bits of map going slightly pink and then, you know, going into the third wave panic. And meanwhile, Liam, we are seeing hundreds of thousands of jobs going, aren't we? And this is a direct connection, the human tide of human misery. I know it seems to be easy for the government and everyone else to overlook it, but we shouldn't, should we? I mean, look look at the what are the what are the latest figures telling us? Well, the economy flatlined in October and that was before the November lockdown. So Mm. the October figures, which have just come out, they come out with a lag, show that the economy barely grew and that was outside of lockdown. And we know that the November figures are going to show a renewed plunge. And these aren't just numbers and data and this is not money and avarice. These are real people with real businesses and real jobs and real mortgages and real families and psyches and we know that economic nosedives cost lives and you have to wonder don't you we've had Essex split in the middle now I live Mm. in North Essex as Mm. you know and we're still in tier two whereas it's more rural in the southern part of the it's a huge county obviously biggest in England in the southern part of the county there's more urban there are much higher incidents of covid cases they're now in tier three it makes you wonder what people in kent must think because yes. kent is kind of essex in reverse in the sense that the north of kent near the estuary which is more urban lots of covid cases there but in mid and southern kent where it's much much more rural at least until you get to the coast again covid cases are low so it makes you wonder if they can zone essex why can't they zone kent and why can't they actually zone london because we know in in certain parts of london there are barely any COVID cases. It's quite hard to work out what's going on, isn't it? So it Sir is. Patrick Vallance said to a common select committee a few days ago that there was no scientific evidence to support shutting hospitality or curfews. He said it was policy. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? It's a bit like when you're trying to sort out you know, some awful administrative thing on the phone and you, you point out to your utility company or, or the shop that's given you terrible customer service or your mortgage company you say yeah but that's mad yes and unfair and they say well that's our policy and i'm yeah your policy is mad but that's policy as if that's the end of the argument because they say it's policy it's policy is not a scientific argument i actually spoke this week to quite a young mother with young children and she gave me a shock limb quite tearful and she said she knew almost to the last item how much was left in her fridge Crikey. And this is a, a a couple who back in January were earning, pulling in together about 80 grand. Really good, you know, a good, a good income to raise. Wow. To raise I mean, that's to, that's the average household income yeah. is about 26, 27 yeah. grand. And, uh, the husband works in events, which obviously that's completely gone. He's been furloughed and the wife's, um, the mum's, a small business has just completely tanked. So that's a relatively prosperous young family who have gone from doing pretty well, being able to look forward to holidays and having a decent car to seriously wondering how they're going to feed the children. So let's not kid ourselves. That pattern is being repeated across the country. And these people, the broken, the frightened, are being paid no heed 
no heed by our COVID-obsessed government. And it's all about protecting the NHS. You know, I mean, actually, we had Claire, the GP, who um, spoke for, to Planet Normal a few weeks ago. Claire said, she, Claire right. said, I'm not seeing... Again, not her real name. Not her real name. Claire said, honestly, I'm not seeing COVID cases. I'm seeing lots of other cases. She also said that to do the vaccines, they've now been told to stop doing diabetes checks and heart checks and all these other checks. So that's more collateral damage building up. But Liam, what do you think is going on? I keep asking myself what is going on when the figures that George is giving us and other figures we can see are not supporting a third wave, let alone a pandemic. What I think is going on is this. I mean, look, throughout this pandemic, we we agreed with lockdown at first, didn't we? Completely. I mean, you've you've been getting a hard time about this on Twitter. You're not denying that COVID is a nasty virus. You're not denying that no. people have died with it. I mean, there are some people out there who who deny the whole thing. You are not in that category, and nor am I. What we're saying, I think we're both saying, is that we don't think the fatalities under COVID are so great. Not to undermine families who have lost loved ones in any way but we don't think they justify locking down the entire economy given the knock-on effects of locking down the entire economy on health and fatalities so-called deaths of despair plus on the economy itself (laughs) so we don't think the cost-benefit analysis if you like stacks up to have ongoing really draconian restrictions and of course you will be criticized for that i will be criticized for that But there are many, many very, very eminent people out there who agree with us. I mean, there are many good economists now. I've written about them in my Economics Agenda column in recent weeks who are doing this cost-benefit analysis and saying on a like-for-like basis, lockdown doesn't stack up. More people are dying and more damage is being done from lockdown than from the disease itself. That doesn't mean you don't protect the vulnerable. It doesn't mean you take absolutely no restrictions. It's all about balance, Given that, we're going to be in lockdown till spring, mm. possibly summer, even with the vaccine. And there's a lot more damage we can do to the economy. There's a lot more non-COVID deaths that are going to happen because the NHS is so focused on COVID. There's a lot more debt that we can rack up, possibly leading to a market implosion, which will, of course, have massive socioeconomic ramifications, including deaths. And I think when the history of this period is written... It will be the focus on cases, cases, cases as the main policy making variable rather than ICU, rather than hospitalizations in general, rather than deaths specifically from COVID that will be seen to be the huge mistake that we've made. It begins as a love story. Couples who meet as young activists, bonded in a fight against injustice. We seem to have similar outlooks in life. He often made me feel very special. It felt like we were in love. I remember it being quite magical. As far as I was concerned, we had a future together. I fully did envisage my future with him. But then he starts acting strangely. Suddenly there were secrets and there were inconsistencies and there were things that didn't make sense. Then one day he leaves... I came home from work and I realised immediately that he'd gone. Vanishes without a trace. And the reason why these men disappear is so disturbing, it's led to a formal apology from the state. I never for a moment thought that it would be what it actually turned out to be. This is Bed of Lies, the true story of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history and the latest podcast from The Telegraph. Talk about the Stasi in East Germany... That's not how we understand our society. A tale that travels from the safety of a loving bedroom to the very heart of the law. Search for Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. Now last week, Brian Stewart, the Fraserburgh-born fisherman, voyaged with us to Planet Normal. He told us in his lovely Scottish East Coast brogue just what he thought of the Brexit negotiations and as he memorably called them, the Triangle Toast Eaters, the southern media pundits who just don't get what makes our fishermen tick. A warm, heartfelt interview that proved hugely popular with many of you. Alison, 
Who stowed away with you this week? Well, yes, Liam, people absolutely loved your interview with Brian and I really think he's what the best of planet normal. Triangle toast eaters. Triangle toast eaters. Absolutely. I was, I was sli- I've been slightly watching my own to- toast-eating habits. This week. <laughs> I'm never going to give it a triangle again. <laughs> no, exactly. Just eating a whole slice, like, a, you know, absolutely. Just fold it over. I mean, come dip it in your tea. And- <laughs> <laughs> so as the long wait continues for a resolution in the Brexit trade deal negotiations, no. I, mean, I think Ursula van der Leyen has said there's a path to agreement now, which, you know, I mean, is that a three-mile path or a... 50 mile path. But I thought it would be great to talk to someone who knows the EU and its mysterious ways inside out. Mark Higgy is a senior political advisor who was Australia's ambassador to Brussels between 2014 and 2017. Previously, Mark was international advisor to Tony Abbott. You remember that he was the leader of the opposition in Australia and prime minister. Mark also served as ambassador to Hungary, where he is now a senior fellow at the Danube Institute, a Budapest-based conservative think tank. You know, Liam, for a former diplomat, Mark Higgy is a pretty pungent commentator, very witty and down-to-earth, about as diplomatic as co-pilot Halligan, I find. <laughs> he writes for the Australian Spectator and other publications, including our I mean, own. an Aussie in Brussels. I mean, can you, I mean, mate, come on. I mean, you can't be serious. I mean, really? That is pretty much the tone of his commentary. Slightly more elevated, but that's where it is. Back in t- 2019, when Ursula von der Leyen was elected, three sets of inverted commas, President of the European Commission, Mark wrote, there's nothing new in the EU nominating those rejected by the voters or shonky retreads to its most senior <laughs> Shonky <posts."> retreads? <laughs> I, I, I lived in Australia for a year. Aussie slang, it's just the best. It's a mixture of kind of working class... <laughs> mid-19th century stuff mixed up with fabulous Asian slang and Polynesian and all garnished with massive Aussie open-heartedness. I absolutely love Australian humour. I think that Shonky retreads just got to join the (laughs) planet-normal lexicon. Anyway, I spoke to Mark Higgy, who was in a snowbound Austrian He was in a bar. He wasn't in a bar. He actually wasn't in a bar. He He was in Austria. And I asked Mark Higgy... What on earth is going on behind those closed doors at the moment? And does he think there's going to be a deal? It's the usual uh, case of these things are never resolved until the the final minute. But look, you'd have to be a very brave person to predict what's going to come out of this. I mean, it it goes up and down uh, every day. My hunch is that um, there'll be a a deal at the the last moment. But I I could be terribly uh, wrong on that. Having said that, I worry about... Angela Merkel Mm. in the sense that I was in Brussels when uh, David Cameron was trying to stitch up a a deal to take back to Britain to get, get, get him through the referendum. And people were surprised at just how hardline and ideological she was about the European project. I mean, basically, as you know, as well as I do, Cameron basically needed a bit of flexibility yes. uh, to be able to to go back to Britain and say, well, look, look, you know, we can have an emergency break or whatever it was going to be on on immigration. They've understood our concerns. A bit of a, a fiddle and a concession, small concessions here and there. Mm. And, you know, the, the referendum could have, could have gone the other way. So even though there have been people in the media who've said that Macron was the one playing the hard cop and, and Merkel running the presidency of the of the European Union till the end of the year wants a, a resolution and she's got the German car makers breathing down her neck as well. I just wonder whether she could surprise us by being uh, hardline again. I think most Planet Normal listeners think, for crying out loud, they've had four and a half years yeah. to sort this out. Well, absolutely. What the hell is there left to discuss? I mean, is it... A case of who will blink first. The negotiations that Britain has had with the European Union are on a, on a trade deal are absolutely unique. You mm, can't really compare mm. them to any other free trade negotiations with any other country in the world because the EU has decided to treat Britain as a as a unique case. I mean, yes. the objective was to get a Canada-style free trade deal. When I was in Brussels, the the the, the option seemed to be everyone was yeah relatively optimistic at that stage that it would either be Canada plus, in other words, you know, even better than Canada, and Donald Tusk was offering that for a while, mm-hmm. um, or Norway minus, in other words, some kind of arrangement with the uh, EFTA group, but but not quite as uh, 
as close. Anyway, the EU has completely unreasonable demands of Britain, basically that uh, remain in its orbit. And by the way, give us 80% of your fish. (laughs) This has just made things very, very uh, difficult. And uh, I admire the British negotiators for sort of having uh, kept up their spirits with all of this because it's, uh, I mean, it's completely unlike the sort of situation Australia's been in. And uh, and by the way, I should say that uh, that Australians find it very amusing that uh, No Deal is dressed up as an Australian style. Yes, I was going to ask you about Uh, that, yes. uh, I mean, we we should be flattered, of course, that a pretty ordinary uh, or even negative outcome uh, is dressed up as something positive. I I assume the psychology is there is that people are thinking of an Australian style immigration points based immigration outcome and that, that that sort of strikes a lot of people as a as a nice cuddly positive thing so therefore we've got this term Australian style but I must say it is it'd be quite misleading because uh, even though we don't have a comprehensive free trade deal with the EU uh, for the last 4 years we've been trying very hard to get one Mark, you memorably wrote that the UK leaving the EU is, quotes the biggest setback in its 62-year history. Isn't part of the problem that we've got at the moment that the EU doesn't really regard the UK as a separate country seeking a trade deal? Well, absolutely. And uh, despite the fact that this saga has gone on for so many years, and you'd think that the uh, Brussels establishment would understand Britain's desire to re-establish sovereignty. They just don't get it. And uh, they are really very obtuse. You know, I think the EU has to has to accept a lot of the blame for, uh, for the way things have gone. Have you picked up from your sources there sort of anger? I mean, it strikes me that they're They've sort of there's quite an arrogant attitude. Are they are they really really fed up with the British? I think so. I suppose it's understandable. I mean, Britain has decided to basically leave a club mm. where the other members, you know, passionately believe in that club and its vision and uh, and and what they're trying to do. And so so you know, I suppose in some ways, you know, one has to accept that that's uh, fairly inevitable. That there's a lot of uh, anger around. And I think that element of, you know, punishing Britain, both for what it has done and also as an example to others, is uh, a, a real factors which have just never gone away in the background here. If you were advising Boris Johnson, do you think no deal might be better than a deal? Is there any circumstance in which that would be the case? I certainly don't think Britain should accept a deal which involves any compromises, uh, even capitulation on this question uh, of sovereignty. I think I think that would really be a big mistake. Now, um, as I was saying before, uh, it's always been assumed that there would be some kind of deal. Nobody really expected that there would be an end to to free trade. That is a real challenge which Britain faces. And you know, what are you going to do about all those uh, ag- agricultural producers and exporters? I mean, you can't go on you know, sort of uh, basically paying them their full wages uh, forever. You mentioned that Canada deal was offered, wasn't it? Or a sort of uh, Norway miners. Why did Barnier turn around and say, no no way? I mean, that was definitely offered, wasn't it, by Tusk, I think? We don't know, of course, you know, whether we got the full picture of what Tusk was offering at that stage, whether he was saying, yes, you can have uh, continued free free trade, but... That will involve uh, you signing up to level playing field mechanisms and the ECJ and all the rest mm. of it. That, that wasn't very clear at that stage, whether there were additional conditions to that offer. And I don't recall the EU ever having said that, yes, you can have a, a deal that is more or less identical to what the Canadians got. So I think there are ambiguities still there in, the, in what they were uh, prepared to offer. And it has to be remembered that Tusk, I think, was... Uh, uh, has been one of the most uh, tricky characters uh, overall <laughs> when it came to uh, to, to Brexit. Um, you know, it has constantly been um, gratuitously uh, rude to British uh, representatives and so forth. I seem to remember, particularly Theresa May. I think it was. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm actually rather missing Jean Claude Juncker <laughs> because at least when he was a a, a couple uh, of bottles of Bordeaux yeah. down, he was a uh, he was fairly he was a uh, at least he was at least he was entertaining. I don't think. Um, Mark, I read a terrific article by you in the Australian Spectator where you were pretty waspish about the calibre of senior EU personnel and of (laughs) Ursula von der Leyen, who is the 
president of the European Commission, who was a German defence minister from 2013, you said Germany wouldn't have been able to launch a war in 1939 if von der Leyen had been in charge of its armed forces. They've been in a more pathetic state on her watch than at any time in Germany's recent history. I particularly like the bit where you said that German troops on one exercise had used broomsticks instead of guns. (laughs) So, So would it be fair to say you don't have a particularly high opinion of the unelected bureaucrats who run the European Union? I think uh, one of Nigel Farage's uh, uh, very accurate uh, assessments is that uh, to to hold a senior post in the European Union uh, establishment, you have to have been a failed politician. (laughs) And (laughs) it was extraordinary how you went through all of the new ones when they were appointed last year. And uh, and they they all uh, very much met the Farage criteria. They really, really so I mean, it is a it is a very peculiar system, you know, in that you have these people appointed to these uh, positions who often uh, their home governments just want to get rid of them. <laughs> yes. I mean, Nigel is, is a very, very astute observer of the, of the, the European Union. I, I've, I've always been impressed by it. Yeah, I think, I don't think they've got, there's not much love lost there, is there? No, 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 there isn't. But if there's one Brit they hate more than Boris Johnson, it's poor old Nigel. (laughs) Mark, the EU has had a pretty dreadful pandemic. I mean, Ursula von der Leyen, she actually excoriated member countries for failing to coordinate their response to the coronavirus. You know, she said, when Europe really needed an all for one spirit, too many gave an only for me response. I mean, if a union of 27 countries can't pull together in a time of major health crisis, can it ever work? Well, that's, that's, that's a good question, of course. And it raises the issue of, uh, you know, which, which people in Brussels spend a lot of their time fretting about, which is, you know, what are properly the issues which the EU uh, should coordinate and which, which are the ones which re- remain the responsibility of the member states? But I, I, I'm not sure that I see the logic of, uh, of having one centrally directed policy from Brussels on something uh, on something something like this any more than that's appropriate in the areas of uh, migration and that's another you know that's 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 a big area that's come up the EU was set up uh, originally as 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 a body designed to encourage greater regional free trade it does not have the right it should not have the right to dictate the immigration policies the uh, internal population policies of individual member states that's uh, that's entirely but but you know that that's another area where the eu you know thinks that it should control the uh, the direction the values uh, of the of the project and, and this is one of the things of course that uh, you know and, and this is one of the things that drove britain out essentially that that, that it was i would argue a, a pretty sensible and logical outfit mm. that did a lot of useful things up until the end of the Cold War and then Maastricht when it became a political project. And, of course, then you had the battles in Britain between uh, Margaret Thatcher and, uh, mm. and the, the Euro enthusiasts. And uh, it's really been a very controversial direction of travel uh, for many, even in, even in the old core countries, uh, France, Germany, etc., ever, ever, ever since. Mark, you were also ambassador to Hungary. Yes. Do you think Hungary should be in the European Union? And what do you think Viktor Orban's attitude is to the EU and the EU's attitude to Viktor Orban? Well, the great line uh, which, you, which you hear uh, uh, around Brussels is that um, the EU's worst nightmare was Britain's decision to leave the uh, European Union until they discovered that Viktor Orban wanted to stay in the European Union. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so Hungary and, and its neighbours, they all want to remain members. As to whether they uh, should be, well, I, I, don't see, I don't see why they shouldn't remain members. The big area of, of tension is that they have different attitudes and values on a range of issues mm. uh, of, of importance Indeed. and uh, I've yeah. mentioned uh, migration that's the that's the big one and and that of course it, it goes back to the fact that uh, Angela Merkel in 2015 essentially unilaterally decided to open the floodgates of Europe to uh, a vast number of people who Donald Tusk by the way said were mainly not genuine refugees mostly economic migrants and um, Viktor Orban said that he didn't think this was a very good idea. And, and a lot of people, including in Western Europe, agreed with him. 
but the view of the EU establishment was that this was uh, terrible and, uh, and, and how could you possibly uh, take that view? And of course, the argument has continued because the EU's tried to bring in these uh, quota arrangements where, where the, the boats flood into Spain or Italy or Greece and then they're, they're sort of spread around the member states and this is the way you manage uh, <laughs> migration uh, into Europe. Has Hungary refused to take any? Is that right? Yes, Yes, they have, as as have Poland. Some of the uh, East Central Europeans have been a little bit more strategic about it. I think the Czech Republic has taken ten, oh. and uh, Estonia maybe twenty or, or something. And and so so that that means they're sort of off the hook. But because uh, Hungary and Poland are so categorical in in saying that they think that the European Union should be about genuinely defending its ex- external borders and not handling this challenge this way. They have a lot of logic going for them, and it would be absurd if they were were somehow excluded uh, for their position. And 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 you may have noticed that the pressure on them has has moved mm. uh, onto other issues. The latest one is that the EU Commission has tabled a paper on a fairly woke strategy in relation to LGBT sort of issues become European law. And the big um, battle recently has been whether the budget should be linked to values and rule of law. And if this goes through, then places like Hungary and, and, and Poland that unapologetically have a traditional approach to matters of family and, and laws on these sorts of issues. If Hungary continues to maintain that there are only two genders, mm. that marriages should be between a man and a woman, that gays can't uh, adopt children, they would be in breach of EU values and breaching rule of law and therefore they could have budgetary action taken against mm. them. I think there's probably not so much awareness about the fact that this issue has moved in this uh, new direction. But that could blow up, couldn't it? I mean, is the, is the EU inevitably moving to the left, do you think? Well, it, I must say it, it, it gives every appearance of doing that. There are strong parallels with the United Nations, I think, in the, in the sense that it's been, been seized by people who have a particular view of the world. It sounds to me like you're saying it's a good time for Britain to get out. Would that be fair? I certainly take the view that the post-Maastricht iteration of the European project really meant that if you're a member state, you are not a fully independent sovereign country. I mean, Boris Johnson, actually, uh, when he was foreign secretary, came out to Australia and gave a very good uh, talk. And the the key message of that was that he said, I would like the United Kingdom again to be an independent country like Australia. You know, and, and, and a lot of people in the audience were, were sort of surprised that he was saying, well, Australia is actually a genuinely independent, fully sovereign country, and the UK wasn't. In the last two years, the UK signed 57 trade agreements with other countries, more than many critics thought was possible. What do you think is the outlook for the UK as a global trading power? I know that you've been worked closely with Tony Abbott, who has been appointed as a UK trade advisor. He has a great track record. Do you, do you think we're going to be friendless in the world or do you think we're going to do OK? No, no, Britain is going to be, is going to be absolutely fine. I mean, the one thing to be said is that uh, you know, these things do take time, you know, and so... Uh, we started ours with the EU, as I said, in the end of 2014. So that's six years. The Canadian one took eight <laughs> years. And the great thing about Tony Abbott is that he's um, he gets uh, very, very impatient when things go slowly. And he, mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he will bring both the uh, expertise of, of his achievement and uh, and wonder why things aren't going uh, uh, as quickly as, 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 as they might. Australia does a lot of trade with China. Yes. China doesn't always treat Australia particularly well. No. Singling out barley, copper, wine, other Australian exports. No, no. Um, what can Britain learn from Australia in, in, in that regard as it looks to expand its non-EU trade, particularly with these big, fast-growing Asian economies? I mean, it was a big achievement for Australia to negotiate a free trade deal with China because uh, it had been going for a long time and uh, and it has increased, uh, in the good times, it increased our exports very significantly. But I'm afraid I would have to urge extreme caution. I mean, we've got ourselves into a situation now where China is our most important export market and China is behaving like a shocking bully and has decided to, I think, make an example of Australia because we had the temerity to call for a a global inquiry into the origin of the COVID Mm. pandemic. And and they were furious with that, and and now they're you know sector by sector they're uh, they're finding reasons uh, not to import our stuff. So um, the lesson of all this is, I mean, of course, I suppose you know Britain will try for a for a free trade deal with China, 
But for God's sake, don't put too many of your eggs in the in, in the China basket, as I'm afraid we probably have, you know. And so even though we've got lots of free trade deals and we, we trade all over the world, you know, we are just a, a very large proportion of our trade has gone to China. And and Britain should try to make sure that it's it's a manageable proportion because China is a thug and a bully and blatantly uses uh, um, and trade in an overtly political way. Wow, that was a ripper. I think you were still laughing at shonky retreads, weren't you? <laughs> Aussie slang is just the best in the world. I thought I thought he was so wide-ranging from speculating about Merkel being the, the bad that cop was interesting. rather than the good cop. That was interesting. That we perceive and very determined that Britain shouldn't accept any deal which involves compromise on sovereignty. And I just loved his insights into into all the little bits and pieces we wonder about. I mean, the, the, the idea of the EU being a scrapyard for failed politicians, which is which rather bears out most British people's instinctive reaction, don't you think? Yeah, I felt that he was very worldly wise on how the EU works. And also, he was very worldly wise on the Chinese. Mm. Australia, of course, has pivoted absolutely to Asia. It's clearly an Asian economy, given its place in the world. It's part of lots of trans-Pacific partnerships with those local economies. And for the most part, it's done really well. But you'll remember, Alison, in the early parts of this coronavirus episode, the Aussies did call for a full inquiry into how this virus escaped from China. And China did put them down. And I thought British diplomats weren't nearly strong enough in rebutting the Chinese. The Aussies were calling for some kind of investigation so this doesn't happen again. And the Chinese dismissed that out of hand and have responded as Mark Higgy has confirmed there, with some pretty muscular trade restrictions on the Australians. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do a free trade deal with the Chinese. It's the biggest economy in the world under some definitions. It's just that we should go into it with our eyes wide open and make sure this isn't an absolutely huge proportion of our trade. And I think that advice was well meant, and I hope the government's listening. I thought it was also interesting how he was talking about how the EU had been fine as a as a trading organisation, but how it's ever increasing remit, including going into social attitudes. You know, he's talking about sort of more woke values coming out of Brussels, which may not be shared by particularly some of the Eastern countries in the Union. You know, I found over the years, Alison, talking to economists and academics and politicians in countries like Australia, like the States, countries that have relatively young histories, if you know what I mean. Countries where people learn about the foundation of their nations from a sort of wilderness and scrub. They understand what it means to build a nation and the blood, sweat and tears that go into it. And they understand, a lot of Australians and Americans I've talked to over the years, that Europe is completely different. You can't just create a country out of lots of other countries and ignore their history, particularly in a patchwork quilt of ancient civilizations, which is Europe. And I really believe that the EU is coming up against this reality now where you have a generation of younger people who realize this, who realize that it doesn't make any sense to have a pooled fiscal policy and pooled monetary policy. The nation state is not a bad thing. A nation state is the most successful unit of governments, if you like, in human history. And I think as we leave the European Union, of course it's going to be bumpy for months and months. And of course, as Mark Higgie said, and it's completely obvious to anybody who's objective and understands EU diplomacy, that they will make it really difficult for us. They will make it deliberately difficult and painful as they have for the last four years, in order, as you said last week, pour décourager les autres, in order to make it difficult for others to consider the merits of being outside of a federal superstate. It does look unbelievably now as if we are close to a deal. I know, Liam, you've always been pretty gung-ho about that we'd be fine on WTO terms. I'm I'm slightly more nervous. I, I think we've got enough going on without having, you know, long, long traffic jams 
down to Dover with all the unpleasantness that that might bring. But I, I don't want WTO rules. I just don't think it will be the catastrophe that people who want to remain in the European mm. Union constantly say it will be. It will be bumpy and they will deliberately make it hard. But the long-term implications of staying inside the European Union, in my view, particularly in terms of independence and sovereignty and democratic representation, but also in terms of economics, by the way, this is the slowest growing continent in the world. It was 40% of the world economy. But it does look like we will have a vote in Parliament on this deal next week. I think it really is going to happen. I mean, whether the European Parliament can approve the deal before January the 1st. I mean, the, the, the European Parliament needs a unanimous vote to go for a wee, Liam, don't we know? We know so whether or not it can actually get its act together to, to sign off a deal. But I think, But I think we are nearly there. And I personally think that some small compromise will be a price worth paying because it's a long game. So on to our reader emails, a selection of the messages that you, our listeners, send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. For Liam and I, this is the main reason we record Planet Normal each week, because of the feedback we get, what we learn from you, our fellow citizens of the Planet Normal, this wonderful community that has formed over the last 30 episodes. So here's an email that caught my eye this week referring back to Robert and Josephine. This is from Anthea. I have been so moved by the story of Robert and Josephine and irritated beyond belief at the rules put in place which are currently preventing our older loved ones living their final years with some contact with their families. Since February, I've been unable to see my 86-year-old mother for more than 30 minutes. She has advanced dementia and these visits have been nothing short of disastrous. The staff in the care home are wonderful, but they are tied up in all sorts of red tape. It comes to something when I say it was fortunate that yesterday morning my mother fell in her care home and needed to be taken to hospital. Once out of the clutches of X, a company which would be better suited to running a prison facility, common sense prevailed. The paramedics asked me to go to A&E. I then spent six precious hours with my mum. I only had to don a surgical mask. I was given free reign to hold her hand, hug her, comfort her and stroke her hair. I gave her something to drink. I played music to her. I cried with her and with the staff who were equally emotional that this was the first time I had any meaningful contact with my mum in nearly a year. Simple caring things are such a basic human right as is touch, to which my mum responded so positively. It was an emotional roller coaster of a day, but one which I was so grateful to have had. And that's from Anthea. With all best wishes to you and Mr. Halligan. Who is this? I'm a snivelling wreck at the moment, I tell you. <laughs> Crikey. No, wonderful email, Anthea. Absolutely wonderful. This is Kim from Essex. Thanks for your weekly dose of common sense, which I've valued so much over these last months. Most of Essex has just gone into tier three, says Kim, as we heard. And one of the ways many of us have held on to our friendships and sanity over recent months has been to huddle under a marquee with a strip heater to meet for lunch and a chat or in each other's gardens. This has now been banned under tier three. As we've layered ourselves with blankets, hats, full length coats, we've laughed at the ridiculousness. But we've been so grateful local pubs and restaurants have shown such dedication in providing a way for us to meet to maintain their businesses often at great expense to them. Surely, surely, says Kim, this should be allowed to operate an outside service, even under tier three, as the likelihood of transmitting anything except a smile and human warmth is very, very low. Great email, Kim. You know, Liam, we're terribly grateful for humour, aren't we? Absolutely. This, this really bleak and trying time. A parent shared a wonderful email from a head teacher who clearly has an excellent sense of humour. This is the email that the headmaster sent. Dear parents and carers, we are all heading into more tiers in tiers. Our town and its environs are in tier two, which essentially means that if another person comes into your field of vision, you must go and live in a cave. Where I live, we are in tier three, requiring that if you even have a memory of another person, you must purge your soul by burning all of your clothes, wrapping yourself in garments of hawthorn and flailing yourself with a barbed wire whip doused in vinegar. <laughs> Being of Irish Catholic background, we go. this does not sound too bad to me, <laughs> perhaps even a soft option. It's a normal Tuesday night. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 
<laughs> what a fantastic head teacher to to be able to address the parents rather than this, you know, draconian madness. How lovely to have a head teacher who can keep a sense of humour amidst all the craziness. Amidst the humour, a really tough email here from Nigel. The extent of our disproportionate response to COVID, says Nigel, with the Save the NHS campaign at its heart, was brought home personally yesterday when a close family friend, a young mother, died of a non-COVID condition because she felt it wasn't serious enough to bother the NHS in the midst of this pandemic. Her husband arrived home after picking up their two children from school to find her dead on the sofa. If and when this madness passes... COVID deaths will represent the tip of a gigantic iceberg of death and destruction caused by the indirect results of these disastrous policies. Now, Alison, I thought long and hard before reading out this email. Mm, And the reason I've read it out is because I want to say to all our listeners, if you are ill, if you feel you need to go to the hospital, go to the hospital. I think there's a real strain and it's well meant and it's coming from a good place in the British psyche. You don't want to bother the hospital. It's nothing. It will pass. And a lot of people, particularly older people, particularly the war generation, feel that strongly, particularly at a time when they know the NHS has been under pressure because of this pandemic. That doesn't matter. Go to hospital. That's my advice, and I'm sure it's your advice too, Alison. It's the advice that we get from the countless doctors, nurses, medics who email us at Planet Normal, who we converse with and correspond with, and that's why I read out this email. Yeah, absolutely absolutely devastating, and, and don't let anyone you, you know or love be a casualty like that. Ruth writes to us saying, Here in the Northwest, hospital-acquired COVID infections have been at 25% for months. A hospital in Tameside, I think this was mentioned in the Telegraph, Liam, was even closed down for a while when infections topped 40%. A doctor this week suggested that a proportion of, quotes community infections could actually have their origins in hospitals, with people picking up infection from hospital visits now some functions are partially working. The NHS has not been fit for purpose for decades. One benefit of COVID, it's never been more obvious. So that's it for our latest trip to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry to the madness of planet Earth. Keep your spacesuit handy for next week and some reindeer antlers because we'll be back for another blast off in our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense. You're after my reindeer antlers, aren't you? I I know know you're jealous. I know you're jealous. So every Thursday at 11am, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community and click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section between 11am and 12 noon. We'll be there replying to them. Please come and join us. You can read Alison in the Telegraph and online every Wednesday and me every Sunday. We'd also like to say thank you again to the many Planet Normal listeners who rang the Telegraph's Christmas charity helpline last Sunday. We were there manning the phones. Can we say that? Peopling the phones together with Telegraph colleagues who received pledges totalling over £124,000, which went to charities including Macmillan Cancer Support and Refuge. Thanks to everybody who donated and to our Telegraph colleagues who masterminded a huge effort. And we also wanted to say that we will keep recording Planet Normal over the Christmas break because we haven't got anything better to do. Nice nice excuse to escape from from the ravening hordes in my case. We won't abandon you. Liam and I will keep on voyaging across the Christmas sky in our rocket of right thinking with Liam dressed up as Rudolph, of course. I'll be the Princess Nut Nut in the sleigh. And how about this? During the Christmas period, we'd like to invite you, Planet Normal listeners, to record a 15-second voicemail message telling us why you love your trips to Planet Normal and suggesting one policy which you think this government should adopt in 2021. Now, remember, we're calling this 15 Seconds of Fame. Them's the rules. All you need to do is call 07867 162170 and leave a voicemail. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from, why you listen to Planet Normal and one policy for Boris Johnson in 2021. And your voice message needs to be 15 seconds at most. That number again, 07867 162170. Who you are, where you're calling from, and we'll 
put that number in the show notes to this episode. It's a bit of Christmas fun. Remember, you've got 15 seconds to say why you listen to Planet Normal and one policy, serious or funny, that you want Boris Johnson to adopt in 2021. Please keep it um, polite. We'll choose some of your messages to play during our Yuletide Planet Normal trips on the 24th of December and then again on the 31st of December, New Year's Eve. We may not be fully sober. Well, Halligan won't be. I'll be have my little glass of uh, sherry. But we will be here and we'll hope you, you will be with us too. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay in touch with family and friends and we'll be back with you on Christmas Eve. And as our beloved planet normal fades out of sight and Earth hoves into view, thanks to our producers, Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett and our editor, Theo Leludis. So until our next voyage on Christmas Eve, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>